0: Welcome to the Race and Redemption podcast. We're here to help white Christians move from questions to change.
1: This is my friend, Susan. She brings her whole heart to this conversation. She has a wealth of experience in cross-cultural relationships in her own family and in her community, and she marries that with the truth of scripture about race and redemption.
0: And this is my friend, Brooke. She has been researching these topics for years within the church, and she's bringing new information that's factual, accurate, and nonpartisan, and that's what the church needs right now.
1: Army combat veteran and prosecutor became district attorney of the Cobb Judicial Circuit on January 1st, 2021, with a vow to hold violent criminals accountable while restoring nonviolent offenders to productive lives. D.A. Brody believes wider community engagement, including expanded access to accountability courts and more visible victim advocacy, are essential to that effort. D.A. Brody spent more than two decades in the Army as an instructor, a recruiter, and a combat infantryman with tours in Iraq. He earned his law degree at Seton Hall University, where he also led ROTC. He previously prosecuted cases in the Solicitor General's office and also served as coordinator of the Veterans Treatment and Accountability Court, where he helped veterans overcome issues of substance abuse, PTSD, and behavioral issues to help them reintegrate back into society as productive citizens. In 2017, Flynn became prosecuting attorney for the Cobb County DUI Accountability Court, which offers a treatment alternative to DUI offenders who are willing to be accountable for their actions and seek treatment to control substance abuse issues. DA Brody has also been working as a member of the prosecution team handling the trial of the men accused of murdering Ahmaud Arbery in February of 2020. Thank you so much for joining us today. And it is an honor and a pleasure Mm -hmm. to have District Attorney Brody here with us today. And we know that you are very busy at the moment with a lot of things, which we'll talk about. So we're so grateful for you making time to talk with us and to help us become more educated about the justice system and how we can bring change in, in our communities and in our government in that way and the work that you're doing. So before we dive into all of our million questions about the work that you're doing, because we have so many questions, I just would love to hear a little bit of the story from your perspective. You know, we've shared with our listeners just a bit about your background, but from your perspective, just what was it like to grow up through the experiences you had in the U.S. and how has that shaped the work that you're doing now?
2: I started very early being interested in the military because my father was in the service and um, we moved around quite a bit. So being in one place sort of was not something I had ever thought about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been here in Cobb County for almost 14 years now, and I still get that three year itch that at three years. <laughs> I know
0: that three year itch. I know it. Yeah, yeah.
2: I move <laughs> here. I'm supposed to be moving somewhere, but yes. um The military has been so diverse for so long. Mm. And so I grew up with a a lot of different people, a lot of different backgrounds, and just understanding how working together, working towards the same common goals was so much easier. Because one of the things that I I hate more than anything right now is how we label everything. Mm. Mm. We label this white, we label this black, we Mm. label this brown. The thing about my military experience, um, even as a kid, was that those labels just didn't exist, Mm -hmm. you know, that we worked together, that we played together, that we did all those things together. And when I first moved to Birmingham, Alabama, which is where I went to high school was the first place where I was actually in a segregated environment Mm -hmm. where predominantly I'd been in such diverse environments. And then when I moved to Birmingham, I was in all black high school. It Mm -hmm. was something I had never experienced before. And it taught me quite a bit. But it also helped me to understand that, you know, for far too many people, it's always an us against them mentality. Mm -hmm. And growing up with my mom, she was the, the religious one in my family. And when we moved to Birmingham is when we first really started going to church. And for me, the experience was sort of awkward because I had family members that On Sunday, they were holier than thou. Mm -hmm. But Monday through Saturday, they were the devil. (laughs) (laughs) And so that experience sort of turned me off from the church. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. When I joined the military, I I, I didn't really go to church. I really didn't practice religion. I had faith, but I I just didn't practice it like Mm -hmm. I should. And when my mom died, when I was only the age of 35, Mm -hmm. that really turned my life around. Because when I came home, because I wasn't home when, when it happened, I, I was away in the military. I came home, and I literally went to her bedroom, sat on her bed, and, and she had her Bible open on the side. And she had two verses that were noted in there, Jeremiah 29 and 11, mm-hmm. and also Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Mm-hmm. And when I read those, it resonated with me that if my mom— could believe in Jesus and God so much, to put so much trust in them, there must be something to this. Mm-hmm. My mom died on December 27th. On December 31st, I gave my life to God. Mm. I got to tell you this, during that year, which was probably, I always tell people, it was probably the worst year of my life, but also the best year of my life. You know, I, I lost my mom. I was having issues in my military career. I was having issues in my marriage. But all of that ended up bringing me closer to God. Mm -hmm. And when I turned my life over to God, it's it's like I had a complete reversal Mm -hmm. about what was going on in my life. My military Mm -hmm. career was restored. My marriage was restored. Mm -hmm. So everything just turned around because I decided to give everything over to him. You know, Mm -hmm. we talked about it earlier as far as. Being able to say that, you know, God's got this. God is handling this for us. That's exactly what I did. And the biggest thing about my mom is she was never a waver. She was all in with Christ, all in with God. She wasn't the Sunday holy and then the Monday through Saturday devil. She was holy the entire time. Mm. And that influence on me when I finally decided to give my life over to God, changed me quite a bit. You know, my daughter that I talked to you about early, who's 26 now, she was three, about to turn four. And I really said to myself that I want to set the example for the man that I want her to marry one day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, there was a big change in my life going forward as far as that concerned. When I did leave the military and decided to come to Cobb County, it was because this is where my wife wanted to be. I you know she had followed me everywhere. I said, <laughs> why, where do you want to live? And she chose here. and okay. that's, that's why we came here. Coming here after going to law school at Seton Hall University, I really came in thinking big ideas that, Let's change the world. Let's let's make a difference. Let's see all of these things that we have seen and, and see if we can fix some of the injustices in the world. Because the first time I stepped into a courtroom, I looked around and everybody looked like me. Mm-hmm. Oh. And I said to myself, you know, we can't be the only ones getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. And, and then as I delved into it and found out more, you know, we weren't seeking legal representation. We were trying to handle things on our own. Those things really affected the way the legal process looked to people. And and I always tell people their perception is their reality. And so when you walk into the court and everybody looks like you, you're like, wow, we, we must be the only ones getting arrested. We must be the only ones getting in trouble. But that wasn't the case. It was just those other things, getting a lawyer, taking care of stuff ahead of time was really something that, as African-Americans that they weren't doing. Mm -hmm. But the position I was in as assistant solicitor general, I was able to educate people. I was able to talk to people and and, and get them to realize that, hey, there's a better way to do these things and put people in good positions. And the thing I love about Cobb County is the judges, when you are trying to restore somebody back to the community by providing a sentence that helps them instead of hurts Mm -hmm. them, they were all on board with that. Mm -hmm. And I think that was so important because, Sometimes you can get judges that their full thought process is, how can I punish somebody? How can Mm -hmm, I? So the thing about doing that is when you punish somebody to that point, then it's hard for them to come back to the community because now they can't get a job. Now they can't pay for their house, their rent or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so those things we have to think about in the long term, because for the longest, our criminal justice system has been broken because Mm -hmm. it's been focused on punishment. Mm -hmm. versus restoration. And so when I decided to run for DA, that was my whole thought process because, you know, as Assistant Solicitor General, my focus is on that one courtroom. I don't have a say over the big picture, but becoming district attorney, I can more engage the big picture and and say, okay, these are the policies I want to set in place to help people out. And some of the things that I've wanted to try to do is first of all, How can we take our nonviolent offenders and restore them back to the community? One, we got to get them out of court quick, because what we see more often than not is somebody gets charged and it's two or three years before they come to court for their case. And then when you do that to someone, someone says, I've gotten in trouble. I've gotten arrested. I've missed this time with my family. Let me get my life back together. Mm -hmm. And then two or three years, now we try to punish them. And they've gotten their life back together. So hey. now we, we've set them back wow. once again and hurt them in, in the long run. But to me, if it's a non offender, let's get them in court. Let's get it resolved instead of two or three years. Let's do six to nine months. And so that way we get them back on their feet, get them back to back into the community as productive citizens. Because what that does is it reduces recidivism. It makes our community safer. and And that's the ultimate goal that judges and district attorneys and police officers need to realize is how do we make our communities safer?
1: Mm-hmm. That, that's really important. So I want to double click on that because I want to make sure everyone heard that the end result yes. of this approach is actually safer communities mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anyway.
2: Yes. <laughs>
0: More whole communities. Yes. yes,
2: yes, yes. And and when we put together programs and, and, and I'll just take, for instance, we, we, we're just starting our early intervention court. And what the early intervention court done is it's sort of limited right now because the judges were still trying to get their buy-in. But mm-hmm. they decided to give us a limited engagement here. We're taking anybody who has a simple possession charge, no matter what it is, literally within 48 hours of them being arrested, if they can't get bail, they're released with, and given a court date. When they're released, they're told, if you can afford a lawyer, please bring a lawyer to the next court date. If you can't afford a lawyer, when you come back... There will be what we call in Cobb a circuit defender. Some people refer to them as public defenders there to help you navigate through the process. Mm-hmm. But at that 30 to 45 day court date, what happens there is we enroll them either in the diversion program or an accountability court program. And a diversion program are for those who may be a first time offenders who really don't have a serious drug problem mm-hmm. or just using drugs because they like to use drugs and, and, and not not truly addicted. But those people, we get them into a counseling session, we get them into a a treatment session, we get them into some testing, and then within three months, they're out of the system. Mm -hmm. And we dismiss the charges. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that's hanging on their record. Mm -hmm. Those who are more serious... We put those into an accountability court because they're going to need a longer term treatment, mm. a longer, more intense counseling in order to get them over their addiction issue. But once again, at the end of that accountability court, which is usually two years, it's, it's it ranges from two to three years. At right. the end of that, we still dismiss the charges in wow. that way. So they're not saddled with a record. Yeah. They're yes. not saddled yeah. with something that's going to be hanging over their head because many of these young kids don't understand that. When they started the war on drugs way back in the early 80s, what they did, they said, "Okay, if you're caught with drugs, with possession now, you can't you can't apply for federal aid for Mm -hmm. college. Mm -hmm. And so federal assistance for housing, all those things start going away because Mm -hmm. you've got drug charges. So Mm -hmm. when we when we sell somebody with a drug charge, especially for a first offender, we are really hurting them in the long run. And my research has shown me that those people will end up being rapists and murderers mm-hmm. somewhere in the system. They first appeared as a substance abuse issue. Wow. And so it wasn't addressed then. And then they progress to this, you know, it starts with substance abuse, wow. substance abuse turns into theft, theft turns into assault, assault turns into murder or rape. And if we had addressed it at the substance abuse issue, we would have never got up the, the letter to the most serious crimes. And, and, That's the long-term approach that we're trying to take now to make sure that these people don't become these people. Yeah.
0: I want to take a second with our listeners and define a couple of the terms that you were using. You talked about punitive or retributive justice, and then we talked about restorative justice. And so kind of as an overarching idea, I think the punitive, retributive justice is what we're more used to hearing, which is, I mean, even if you think an eye for an eye, or that you're going to be locked away because you did this thing and you're going to serve your time. And then when you get out, you get out, if you get out. Mm -hmm. And the second you were talking about is restorative justice, which is how can we use a lot of different approaches to be able to address the core issue of what caused the crime to happen so that we can restore you back to the community and bring healing Now, when I hear those two things, which one sounds so much more like the scriptures that we're reading? Mm -hmm. Restorative justice. Mm -hmm. And so I think I want our listeners to understand that this is not something that's just saying you aren't going to be held responsible for what you've done. But I think what we're talking about is how can we look at the scriptures and see, one, how Jesus has looked at me as a sinner. Did he lock me away and tell me he's going to stick me over here for a while, put me in time out and then expect me to come back and do the right thing? No, he's leading me through sanctification. He's mm-hmm. he's shown grace and mercy, but there's a sanctification process. And yes, there are repercussions for my sins, but it doesn't throw me out of the kingdom right. and leave me to the side. He's leading me back in. And one of the things that you mentioned to us earlier when we were talking before this interview was the example of Job and his wife. And I think that fits in really beautifully with this idea. Would you mind sharing that?
2: What I talked about earlier, and it was in context to, you know, we're doing this interview the day before, the day of Veterans Day.
1: Yes. And Thank you for your service. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Yesterday, I lost one of my soldiers to suicide. Mm -hmm. And when I talked about Job, I talked about... Not Job losing everything or Job gaining everything back, but what happens in between. Mm -hmm. And in between in chapters two through 41, there's a bunch of folks that are out there that are helping Job through counseling, through talking to him, letting him know that even though he wants to die and he, you know, he doesn't go as far as wanting to curse God, but he reveals about all the things that are happening to him, wondering why it's going on. And, and lots of times in our lives, we, we face the same things. Why is this happening to me? You know, and instead of accepting and saying that this is where your faith comes in, you know, God doesn't put anything on you that you can't handle. And, and you have to understand that whatever he's putting you through is going to get you to a better place. And And that's what happened with Job. Yes, he had a lot. He lost it all. He got it all back twice as much. But those people in between, which is where we all come in as Christians, is understanding that our duty is to make sure that we are supporting each other. We are talking to each other. We are working with each other so that way we can all receive our blessings. Mm
0: -hmm. And offenders are not outside
2: of that. Offenders are not outside of that. People just don't understand that when you look at someone who's come into the criminal justice system. There's a reason why they did what they did. Mm-hmm. And for for lot of some, it could be childhood trauma. Um, it could be a situation where in order to survive, these are the things that I needed to do. Mm-hmm. Because I don't care who you are. If, if you've got a family and you lose your job, you lose your house. You're going to do whatever you can to feed your children. You're going to do whatever you can to provide something over their head to keep them safe. That, that's just what you're going to do. And, and sometimes if, you, if you're saddled with a criminal history that doesn't allow you to get a job, doesn't allow you to live in certain places, you may have to resort to crime. Right. So we as a community, what do we do to fix that? We have to provide people the opportunity to restore themselves back to the community. We have to do those things. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I'm glad that you're doing this good work. I wanted to share some data because you all know we like to pull
2: scripture and data together
1: (laughs) as our litmus test of where should we be here? That kind of speak to Christians' attitudes about some of these topics, because I think in some ways, the work starts with changing attitudes. Just like you said, judges are concerned about how they're going to be perceived, right? I definitely think some of this data tells us that Christians have a heart for justice, restorative justice, and in some ways, they haven't understood that concept yet. So this is some research we did. We actually do it every two years with Prison Fellowship, which, side note for our listeners, they have not only Angel Tree, if you're familiar with that program, they have so many programs, including a huge advocacy program Mm -hmm. that I've been able to be a part of that I've loved, where they'll tell you some things they're working on, like, hey, write your congressman about this law's coming up or whatever. So if you're interested in trying to figure out how to get involved, it's a great one. But here's some of the things we learned about Christian's perceptions. So one of these questions says it's important to make an example out of someone for certain crimes, even if it means giving them a harsher punishment. And this is that earlier example of punitive justice, Mm -hmm. right? We're trying to say like, this is a thing you shouldn't do. So we're trying to use a person's life as an example. But but
2: the facts have said that... The amount of punishment we place on somebody is no deterrent to someone committing a crime.
1: Yeah. They're not thinking they're not rationally thinking through the trade-off of am I going to get that, you know, punishment or not? No. But um 50% of Christians agree that they would they would agree with a harsher sentence to make an example out of someone. So there's so many ways in which that is unjust. Yes. And it's a way that our system has shaped our thinking yes. that we need to rethink that from Mm -hmm. a Christian perspective. Mm -hmm. This is an important one in the areas we're talking about youth. I believe that sending youth to prison will make them more likely to live a life of crime than to reform them. So you also, so this is the flip side, So you also have with this one, 71% of Christians agreeing with that. So they're saying, oh, we recognize that jail time is not gonna do it and harsh sentences is not gonna do it. This person is not gonna live a productive life Mm -hmm. if we are treating them that way. We talked about recidivism and the hard challenges of getting a job and getting housing and whatnot when you come out of prison. This question was, because of barriers, prisoners do not have a fair chance to succeed in reentering society. Again, we have a great response here from Christians that 69% say, yep, we recognize those barriers are a problem and okay. we need to do something about that. And then personally, do you feel that you need to advocate in support of criminal justice reform? And overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, we see eight out of 10 Christians saying, yes, I do think that that's true. So there's a lot of ways in which I think we need to get more educated about the specifics, which I'm so thankful you're helping us to understand how the system works. Mm -hmm. And then ways in which Christians have a heart for these changes. And so that's a good thing. But I will say what I didn't read you in the data is that Christians don't look terribly different than the general population when we look at their perspective. Perspectives, mm-hmm. Their opinions on these right. topics. And we should look different because we have a, an example through God's scripture of what justice looks like mm-hmm. and is a beautiful example of restoration and of wholeness. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have a lot to learn to kind of shape our opinions and then who then we support mm-hmm. in carrying out that work to really bring new justice into our systems.
2: No, I I think what you're saying is is so right is because every example that we have in the Bible, starting in the New Testament, you know, from Jesus saying, you know, who's without sin, throw the first stone. Mm -hmm. You know, we we all have to understand as Christians, we've all sinned. And though our sins may look different, they're still sins. Mm -hmm. When we take that view of it, we understand that, you know, just because you sin doesn't make you a bad person. We have to be able to say to one another, how can we help this person from sinning? How can we Mm. restore them back Mm -hmm. so that they know that they want to live in a different manner, a different way? Mm -hmm. And to me, that's what the criminal justice system should be about.
0: What are some of those ways that people can be restored back when we talk about innovative or new ways of looking and, and applying restorative justice? What are some ways that that can be done?
2: Well, the first thing that we started is... When we send somebody through diversion or accountability court, we we dismiss the charge, mm-hmm. okay? Because my feeling is if they've completed the counseling, the treatment, and shown that they can get their lives together, I don't wanna saddle them with a charge. The second thing is we need to make our laws, we've done it a small part here in Georgia, but not a big way, that after a certain time, if you've gotten your life together, your record can be restricted so employers mm-hmm. can't see those right. things. If you've shown you've gotten your life to back together, let's stop punishing people for their past. Mm-hmm. When I think about Paul and how he persecuted the Christians and then provided the message to the Gentiles, if we look at Paul's past, we're going to say, there's no way I would trust him. Mm-hmm. But God redeemed him. Mm-hmm. God showed him the way. We need to afford all our offenders the same thing. If they can get their lives together. For political purpose, we always say the nonviolent offenders, because those are the people that people should not be scared of. Mm -hmm. And the violent offenders, those who want to hurt someone, sometimes we take a different path, but no less, it it may be a different path, but it needs to in in actuality be similar, just a longer time frame for them to be rehabilitated. I always like to use the Bible as a reference for, for folks to say, look. You know, for all of us, we're all sinners. And, and and it's only by the grace of God providing his son to save us that when he looks at us, he doesn't see us, but he sees his son. And people need to understand that it's the same way with our community. We can restore people so that way when we look at that person, they're part of the community, not part of the criminal justice system. And look at them as how are they helping us? How can we help them to to make our community safer, to make our community better? And all those things resonate from what we read in the Bible. Mm
0: -hmm. And providing counseling, like you said, providing drug rehabilitation, Mm -hmm. life skills training, work opportunities. And and
2: those are all things that we do in the Diversion Accountability Courts. Mm -hmm. They're designed to say, okay, Let's uncover what the issue is that brought you to drugs. What trauma did you experience Mm -hmm. in life? How do we address that? Once we address the trauma and can get you to understand what your triggers may be or what are the issues that are causing you to go in that direction, once we can do that, then we can start working on how we can fix those things Mm -hmm. and how we can keep you from that stuff. Mm -hmm. Today is important just for that one fact, because in my time in combat, I came back with PTSD. Mm And so I have triggers Mm -hmm. and I spend a lot of time in counseling. I mean, a lot of time. And, you know, I I thank God for my my oldest daughter because she really gave me a reason to live. Mm -hmm. But when I feel my triggers coming on, I know how to address them now. I know how to overcome them to make sure that I don't lapse into that world where I just don't want to be, where I'm letting the demons take over. And that applies for people with substance abuse issues, the trauma that they've gone through. They're self-medicating through drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. If we can address the trauma, we can get them away from the Mm self-medication, which can cause their lives to be better. Mm -hmm. As much as we like to say we want to empower veterans, we need to empower everybody in the community. That's good.
1: Yeah. So that's a great example of how you are working towards restoration of people who've been arrested for maybe nonviolent crimes or a first offense, right? Maybe even we take it broader than that. Maybe this is before they get into that situation or more. Maybe there's something bigger about the justice system and how it needs to be changed to be more just. So what were some of the examples that you've had in your mind, things that you've seen over your career um, that you feel like need to be addressed and ways that we can improve our justice system in this country?
2: Well, I think one of the things we talked about earlier is, is just the focus from punitive to restorative. For the longest, our country has the highest number of people incarcerated Mm -hmm. and Georgia has the highest number of people who are on parole or probation. Mm -hmm. We tend to look at that as the solution to our problem, like that's going to make the community safer. But really, 99 percent of the time when we send somebody to jail, especially our nonviolent offenders, we're just making better criminals. Mm. Then we are rehabilitating them. And so we have to understand that if we really want to make our community safer, throwing somebody in jail for three to five years for for really a nonviolent offense is not doing that because we're not providing them skills. We're not providing them education, the things that they're going to need to be able to get out and come back and be productive members of the community. So we have to take a different look at mass incarceration. We have to say to ourselves, how do we restore people back to the community so that way they don't recidivate, they don't have to revert back to crime. And that means an equity approach towards what we do in our communities. Just take Cobb County, for instance, the kid in South Cobb who lives off of Six Flags Drive the kid who lives in 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 West and East Cobb um, that goes to Walton High School, they could get arrested for the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. The kid on South Cobb Drive, he can't afford bail, he can't afford an attorney. He doesn't have the support at home to accomplish what he needs to accomplish in order to finish the diversion program or to finish an accountability court program. So what happens to him? He violates his probation. His probation gets violated. Now he spends five or six years in jail Mm. for what should have been a 90-day get through this program, get clean, get some education, move on with your life. Well, the kid from Walton High School— His parents can afford a lawyer. They literally bonded him out within two or three hours of him getting arrested. They've called the lawyer before they even gotten home. The lawyer said, "Okay, I know what they're going to do on this. So let's get you into substance abuse treatment. Let's Mm -hmm. get you into this. And before you know it, his case is done and over with. He's off to college. He's going to finish on with his life. Well, that other kid who got the exact same charge, exact same situation, first time offender, we've locked him up into the system. And ruin the rest of his life. Yeah, the equity issue that that brings up is something that we have to address in our community. And I said this before: people's perception is their reality. Mm-hmm. And so when they see that Johnny got his things dismissed and Michael he's gone to prison, what was the difference there? Why did one go one way and one go the other way? How do we fix that? How do we address those issues? And 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 one of the things that I'm trying to do is that everybody that comes before us has to have an attorney.
1: So you've got people coming to you who don't? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow.
2: Even when I was an assistant solicitor, if if somebody had a serious crime, they were still trying to take it on their own. Oh,
0: my goodness. And is that we, a financial concern? Is it a resource Most concern? of the time
2: it's a financial concern. Okay. Because what happens is when they apply for the circuit defender, there are certain documents that they have to provide, certain income levels that they have to reach. And lots of times people may be Ten twenty dollars over the level which you can qualify for a lawyer. Oh, wow. And, you know, it doesn't really take into account, you know, all the other obligations that you may have yes. in life. Yes. You know, because just because you make $40,000 doesn't mean you get to spend $40,000. Yes. Yes. And so those are issues. And people say, well, I can't afford an attorney because I got all these other things. So let me just take it on myself. Wow! And most of the time I've been lucky enough to be in front of judges where I, if I tell the justice to look, your honor, mm-hmm this is a serious charge, he needs an attorney. He doesn't qualify for the circuit defender, he can't afford one on his own, will you please appoint one? And every time I've done that, the judge is appointed an attorney. Mm. And that makes a big difference. And sometimes a person has serious charges where you'll say, you really need an attorney. And when they say they can't afford us, I say, look, if I'm the prosecutor, and I'm telling you, you need an attorney.
1: Yeah, you need you, an attorney. You need an attorney.
2: <laughs> yes. People have to understand that you know, attorney gives you the best opportunity, not necessarily to get off on something, but to get the best outcome, right. and 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 that's what's important: getting the best outcome for you. But with our early intervention court, with the stuff that we're doing in district attorney's office now, we're making sure everyone has an attorney. It helps in two ways. It helps them get their best outcome, but it also helps us to move the cases more expeditious. And and I think that's what's critical is, is getting people through the system so they're not lingering around that two or three years before they actually end mm-hmm. up in court. Mm-hmm.
0: So just to clarify for our listeners, district attorney is a prosecutor. Yes. And you mentioned just a second ago about how you've gone to judges on behalf of defendants and said they need to have an attorney as yes. well. Mm-hmm. So that's the power of a prosecutor. Prosecutors have... An immense amount of power. And yes. it's really only been in the past two or three years. I've personally begun to understand the power that prosecutors have in mm-hmm. everything going on in the courtroom and in the sentencing, mm-hmm. which is another area that really we need to start talking about reform. Mm-hmm. Could you enlighten us a little more on the power of prosecutors and the role that they play in the courtroom and sentencing? Right.
2: Mm-hmm. What you have to remember is when you get arrested by the police officers. What the police officers arrest you for are literally recommendations for charges. When it comes to the prosecutor, the prosecutor can take those recommendations. He can change those recommendations. He can add new charges to whatever happened based on the law. And so you may get arrested for one offense. And then when you go to court, you find out you may have 10 charges. That's the power the prosecutors have as far as charging is concerned. Prosecutor also has the power to say, no, that the officer did something wrong, so we're not going to pursue these charges. He also has the power to reduce whatever charges the officer may have arrested you for. So the, the prosecutor has quite a bit of power. He also has discretion in what will be dismissed, what will go before the judge. The punishment recommendations is what you alluded to earlier. And that's where the equity issue comes in. A side note, one of the things I did with my office is we did some implicit bias training mm-hmm. so people would understand that how they look at things, because what happens and people, they don't do it on purpose, but just because they follow the media, they watch TV, they've got these biases that say that When this person does it because of his skin color or where he lives, he needs to be punished more than somebody else. And those are things that we have to recognize. Mm -hmm. And even for myself, when we had an an officer involved shooting, I told the public, I said, Mm I'm sending this to the grand jury because me as an African-American male, when I see an African-American male shot by a police officer, I have a certain bias against that police officer. But I can't let my bias dictate my decision that could be wrong based on the facts.
1: It is essential that you do at least recognize that that bias is there and maybe make others aware of it so that you can hold each other accountable. Is that not standard? to go through implicit bias training?
2: It, it's not. It's not. And you see more and more of it now, but it, it's it's not a standard thing. Mm-hmm. For too long, most prosecution offices have been about punishing folks. Mm-hmm. And and the harder they punish it, the better they look to the public. Mm-hmm. But right. that approach... Their,
1: their record, their track record, yeah. right? Right.
2: Yes.
0: Hard okay. on crime.
2: Hard on crime. Mm-hmm. That approach does not... Give results on making our community mm-hmm. safe. As a prosecutor, you have to understand that's what your that's what your duty is. You have you have a duty to both the offender and the victim, in the criminal justice system to do what's right for everybody concerned. And and when we look at a long term approaches, how do we make the community safer? We have to reduce recidivism. Mm-hmm. Right. The normal justice system, the way it's been in the the past, recidivism rates have been in the 60, 70 percentile. Really? Yes.
0: That's so high.
2: When you throw in diversion and accountability courts and alternative sentencing options, that drops all the way down to 15 to 20 percent. Oh, my goodness. That's
0: That's dramatic!
2: And that's the approach we need to take going forward because... It will reduce the number of folks in jail. It will reduce the amount of money that we pay out. Exactly. Mm-hmm. People don't understand. It costs anywhere from 70 to to $100 a day yeah. to house somebody in jail.
0: And it's ruining their life. <laughs>
2: and it <laughs> ruins their life.
0: And then you bring in the privatization of prisons and everything that goes along with that, which we won't go down. But you know,
2: the, the thought of privatization of prisons just irks me beyond belief because... Why are we going to pay someone who's going to require us to keep the numbers so high Right
0: for their own income? For
2: their own income. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't make no sense. One of the things that Sheriff Owens did when he first took office is he got rid of the 287G program in Cobb County. And what the 287G program was for immigrants who, who were here unlawfully, if they were arrested, they were held in our jail until the federal government decided to come and get them and deport them. Okay. What that did was it made our community pay for what the federal government wanted to done, which means if they decided to take a whole year to come get that person, we paid for that, Mm -hmm. not the federal government, but we paid for it. And in in lots of times it could have been a nonviolent offense, Mm -hmm. but the other effect that it had on the community was now People are afraid to report crimes because if they do, if the husband gets locked up and held, it takes away their income. It takes away their ability to take care of their family on something that might have been as simple as a traffic ticket. Mm -hmm. And so now they don't report crime. So when you don't report crime, you have people come in and say, "Okay, I know you're not going to report the crime, so I'm going to take advantage of you. Oh, wow. I'm going to extort money from you because if you report it. They're going to send you to jail because you're not here legal.
1: So you've taken what's supposed to be a justice system that's operating in a way that's not fully just. And then you're creating a whole alternative system behind that, mm. yes. which is how people are working around it because mm. the system isn't working. Right. Right. Wow. Wow. There's so much work to do. <laughs> there
2: is so much work. And a lot of it is just getting people to realize that the approaches that we've taken so far have been wrong. There's a reason why our country has the most people incarcerated. There's a reason why we have the most people on probation and and, and on parole, because the approach that we've taken has been wrong. And and when I look at our country versus other countries, the abundance of resources that we have Mm -hmm. here, if we fully utilize them, God knows what we could Mm -hmm, do here. mm -hmm. That's the approach that we need to look at.
0: So for the last couple of minutes, I'd love if we could switch gears and talk about a case that you are involved with here in our home state of Georgia, but it's actually not in Cobb County. It is down in Brunswick. And the team from Cobb County has been called upon to help with the prosecution of the trial and the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. And many of you listeners, I'm sure, are familiar of this case that happened back in February of 2020 when this young man was murdered while jogging. And most recently, you have been down in Brunswick working with the team in the jury selection. And we, as a team, Brooke and I, have been trying to read a lot and learn more about that whole process. And we've seen some headlines that talked about how there is only one African American represented on the jury, and how could this have happened? And from what I understand as a layperson, and I, I would like for you to educate me a little bit more, there was actually a law in place that was supposed to help protect against something like that, but it actually worked against. Well, this the, in the process?
2: The law is, is, is very limited. It's what we call in legal terms a batson challenge. Okay. And and what that does, it says that, you know, you can't strike jurors because of their race. Mm-hmm. The challenge is for the judge is if they can give you any reason outside of race of why they strike somebody, then it's a legal strike. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what happened there. Um, the judge he he went on record and said, you know, I see a case of discrimination here. But the fact is I'm limited because you've given me an opposite reason or another reason outside of race of why you struck somebody. Those are some of the challenges that we have. But the thing, and this goes back to being a Christian, is we continue to label stuff, black jurors, white jurors. Well, we've we've got 12 jurors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's 12 people that I'm confident in that when they hear the evidence and deliberate on the evidence, they're going to come back with the right verdict.
0: That's encouraging.
2: The message I'm trying to convey and people have, you know, they've said to us, the prosecutors are not really mentioning about race. The prosecutors are not mentioning about this. No, because it's not just about race. It's about right and wrong. Mm. Let's continue to focus on doing the right thing. For those who are doing the wrong thing, then we need to focus and punish them for what they're doing. But at the same time, keeping in mind what our ultimate goal is, is that one day restoring them back to the community, mm-hmm. restoring them back to God. That's the way I try to look at things.
1: People are kind of watching all of this with bated breath. You know, yesterday I was able to see reports from journalists who were in the room kind of saying like every half hour, here's what's going on. Right. <laughs> um, and of course, people are getting nervous and they have thoughts about what's happening in the courtroom, obviously. It's not our right to influence that process, but there's a desire to do something or say something. And what are the things that citizens can do who are not actively involved in the process um, that's either helpful or supportive?
2: I, I think the biggest thing is is really just listening to what you're hearing and understanding why we have the laws that we have. You know, I did a Veterans Day message for today and one of the things I talked about that, you know, God has given us, as our Constitution terms, it, inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and I also stuck in their justice. Mm-hmm. But those rights only extend out to the point where they don't interfere with someone else,
0: mm-hmm.
2: which means you can do whatever you want. But as soon as it affects someone else, then it ceases to exist. And for most of us in our country, we have forgot that everyone is entitled mm-hmm. not just white christian males not just white christians but everyone is entitled mm-hmm. to these rights that god has given us and when we focus on that and understand our what god has asked us to do to be obedient and to love one another you know it solves so many issues so mm-hmm. many problems
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're thankful for the way you're faithfully engaging with this case. And it's so encouraging to me just to know that a man of God, a man of faith, a man that's praying, that cares about The hearts of everyone involved in this trial is leading the way down there. And I just want to encourage all of our listeners to continue to be in prayer for everyone involved in this case, for the truth to prevail and for right and wrong to be seen and for the outcome to be one that is God honoring and that is restorative to that community that has been hurting for. Quite some time over all of this. It's been a lot of upheaval for everyone there, broken hearts all around.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the community because when I first took over the case, I met with many of the community leaders, the faith based community, uh, the business leaders. And the one thing that they told me, and, and this was a very diverse group, they said, This is not our community. Mm-hmm. This is not who we are. Mm-hmm. And we need the world to know that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's so good.
1: Yeah. I know many of them are coming to the courthouse each day, Mm -hmm. standing outside and praying and just wanting to show their support. And Mm so
0: I know they're grateful
1: that you're there helping to shepherd that process, too. We are, too. and Mm -hmm. We're
0: thankful for the work you're doing here. Mm -hmm. I live in Cobb County actually learned and researched you when you were running and got to vote for you. So it's a joy to sit across the table from you and, and learn and hear what you're doing and how it's playing out. So thank you again for yeah, joining us, District so Attorney.
2: Now, thank you for inviting me. And, and thank you for the work that you're doing because it's so important that Christians understand who we are. And I'll give you one more story. There's a young man. His name is Farhad. He he, he runs the alternative school in Marietta on Lemon Street. Me and him meet every now and then. He's got quite a story. And one of the things that we talked about is that, you know, as Christians, we have to understand we can't limit God. Mm -hmm. And I say that in the context that we think that by someone else getting blessings, that's taking away blessings from us. Mm -hmm. When you do that, you're showing a lack of faith because God's riches are limitless. Mm. And so blessing someone else is not going to hinder what your blessings are. And we need to think about that in, in the context of the world, that there are so many resources here that just because somebody else gets it doesn't mean it's taking away from what you are able to get. Mm, that's good. He was telling me that was a little bit of Gandhi, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was talking about it in a Christian perspective.
1: <laughs> that's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure to be
2: with you today. Pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you for joining us today for the Race and Redemption podcast. Make
1: sure not to miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button on our page wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: And follow us on Instagram at Race and Redemption so you can join the conversation today. This episode was produced by Matt Owen for Soul Graffiti Productions.